0: Alarm Nerds is brought to you by MS and Life Safety. Trying to grow your business, but not sure where to start? Check out the show notes to learn about our services, along with my contact information. Now let's get started. Okay, we're here for another episode of Alarm Nerds. I'm Dave Schwartz, and with us, the legend, I have Jake Vol from SS&SI. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, hey, thanks so much. I'm glad to be here, Dave. Uh, So our topic for today is going to be kind of a fluid topic, how to choose the right line for your business. Basically, as the little guy, little woman, how do you figure out the right steps to grow your business? So if it's okay with you, Jake, we're just going to kind of hit the ground running. So I'm ABC Alarm Company. I might be a one-person band. I operate out of my truck. I'm I'm a very small operation looking to grow. How do I figure out what makes sense? Is there let's say I go to look at distribution, I go look at an individual relationship with a manufacturer, is there one manufacturer that's good at everything when it comes down to say security versus video versus access? Is there one jack of all trades that makes sense? You know, uh, that's a great question, Dave,
1: and um, you know, we sell we sell multiple uh, product lines from various manufacturers and um, I wish I could say it was as simple as there's just one that gets it done, right? Um, there, what 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 we found is that uh, certain manufacturers really do well with uh, with particular aspects of the business, um, and sometimes the integration across things like video access control, intrusion, that uh, could be really relevant to the dealers. Um, I would say though, if, if somebody's really looking to get started to pick a product line. Anytime you're picking a vendor, whether this is a manufacturer, a distributor, um, you know your your payroll company, your insurance agent, I, w- I would see who you get the support from, right? Um, because I have seen companies that are successful with any and all of the product lines. There, there's no, there's really, uh, there's no reason that you can't be successful with any of the mainstream product lines that are out there. Um, but really, what's going to make the difference for you, especially as you're getting started? is going to be the level of support that you get from your reps, right? Uh, again, that's just any vendor rep that you're working with. Um, I think the difference you'll find uh, in your ability to succeed and get on board with it is going to depend on the relationship uh, you have with uh, with the field rep.
0: Well, it's interesting because there are some companies now that are very much going into the mindset of, we want to be everything. We want to We know we're gonna make access, we're gonna make video products, we're gonna make building entry systems, we're gonna make intrusion, we're gonna make some of them are gonna make fire. And they say we're gonna have everything in one ecosystem. And if we don't make it, good luck. And then you get other companies out there that are saying, Let's figure out a way to be a little bit more open and we're gonna integrate. Well, you know, if if we can't make it, here's here's some some other options that you can choose. And I don't know what makes the more sense. I mean, like you said, if you find a company you trust, maybe you trust them to make that decision for you. You know, I think there's, um,
1: I think that there's value in a uh, in a broad ecosystem of products across product categories, and um, uh, I think that there's a lot of value in the the native integrations that are there. I also recognize the value of a. Um, of what I would consider like a curated ecosystem, right? whether that's whether that's a company or a platform provider keeping everything in-house or it's a, a platform provider or manufacturer that, you know, kind of curates their integrations with third parties, right? Like we see different ways. Some folks are totally open and it's like you can write into our API and and we're happy to just be open to anything and everything. And sometimes there's value in that. I personally think, you know, the folks that are um, either uh, at least somewhat cautious about it, right? Making sure that they have vetted the folks that are going to be communicating with their systems. um, I think that that's probably a wise choice, right? It's just going to control the user experience a little bit more. And then on the extreme of that is the folks that just kind of keep everything in house. Um, You know, that can be frustrating for. Some integrators and some end users, in that, you know what, there may be another system that they want to integrate with it, a third-party product that they want to integrate with it that they're not able to, right? And mm-hmm. and that's certainly a downside. But the upside to that is, if they say it's going to work, it's going to work, right? You don't run into these scenarios where they've thrown their hands up in the air and said, "Hey, that's not a that's not a system or a product that we support." Um, and and so I I really think. In all cases, uh, complexity is uh, is a challenge, right? So anytime there's complexity either in the integration or the user experience, that's a challenge. So if you can overcome that complexity either by being, you know a really great integrator that can tie all kinds of systems together and you understand the way that all that works, or killing that complexity with a curated ecosystem that eliminates, you know, eliminates the uh, the question marks, right? Um, I think that for the end user experience, if you always think about it from the end user experience, keeping it really clean and simple, um, and killing that complexity is, uh, is really the most important thing.
0: However you do that. Well, you made a remark about how if they come out with something new and they say, you know, it's going to work, you need to be able to trust that it will work. Have you found, and you talked earlier about being able to trust. Your your source, whether you know it needs to be a partnership, not just this is where I buy whatever. So, are there sources out there where if they come out with some new widget, you just know it's going to work and it's going to it's going to meet my needs, or are you all, or are you like a lot of us who are skeptical when something new rolls off the assembly line?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, that's a great question. I, I would say I'm there. There are very few folks that have left me skeptical. Um, you know, I, I would say that caution is probably a good, is a good thing. I have seen um, with some manufacturers, uh, I think some things have come out too quickly, right? Uh, in other cases, we've seen frustration from integrators where something was introduced and it's, t- I mean, everybody seen this kind of a, it's a joke, you know, between distributors and manufacturers that Whatever the expected release date is, just add at least six months to it, right? Um, there's definitely frustration sometimes from integrators, especially when those integrators start kind of selling that future product to their end users. Um, but the good news is a lot of the times where we see release dates get pushed out, um, a lot of that has to do with manufacturers having really, or platform providers having really strict kind of beta um, programs and where they say hey look we're not going to release this until we have x number of systems deployed through our you know through our beta beta program participants we've got the feedback um uh i would say that most of the mainstream manufacturers have done um a, a good job of uh, instilling confidence in dealers uh and in, in things working uh that's not to say that's not to say that there aren't unexpected hiccups and challenges that come out you know there's uh, something to be said for having a product fully released right with thousands and thousands and thousands of instances of it out in the field um that that provides a lot more kind of uh real world feedback and testing um we, we definitely see some things come up i think it's important to know that the manufacturers when they see those issues pop up um, that they're very responsive, number one, in, in acknowledging the fact that, you know, there's an issue that exists. Um, they're very quick to get out, you know, technical service bulletins and things like that to let folks know, hey, this is a problem. This is a workaround. Um, and then that, you know, their development teams are working really hard to, uh, uh, to come up with a fix, right? Uh, sometimes that's, a, mm-hmm. that's as simple as a firmware update. Hopefully, hopefully... Um, we can avoid having to, you know, do RMAs and things. In most cases we can. Sometimes, you know, uh, things get
0: Well, there are bad products. I mean, there we've seen companies that are that, you know, not to count anyone else's money, but have enough of it to know better. And they design something in a bubble where everybody on their R and D and research team and engineering team said, This is gonna be the best thing that's ever come out and then you end up with a complete flop. I mean I think about a couple of years ago there was a company that makes primarily intrusion equipment that wanted to try making a PERS, and I was on a team that got to play with it, and they sent it to us, and it had to be programmed through a keypad. And we never even got to the testing phase. We said, we can tell you before taking this out of the box, this is going to work. And, and it's like, you know, such a great idea that nobody thought to go to the field and say, would anyone ever use this?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's amazing to me. Sometimes when when those things happen, you really got to ask yourself: like, did, did you ask anyone? Did you talk to anyone about this? Um, I think I think it's especially challenging when a manufacturer is going into a product category it, th- where they don't have the experience in it, right? So, like, if you're an intrusion manufacturer and you release a product that requires keypad programming, you're like, that, no brainer, man. It's an you know, it's just like all the other products we sell requires a keypad for programming, right? And so, you know, I, I think um, I think anytime uh, a manufacturer or anyone's trying to get into a category of products or services where they have no experience, man, you got to go find those people
0: <laughs> that understand the business and yeah. questions about it, right? So you made a remark earlier about, about these manufacturers hosting a platform. So it's becoming more popular now where these companies <laughs> that... Used to make a product, are now getting the service becoming becoming service providers, where everything is subscription based. There are you know, a lot of companies that offer licenses. Is this just the is this just the way it is now, or is this something that's just a fad? Is this or do you think you know is the is these is the industry changing where you're now going to be in a in a situation where you can no longer just buy a product, but you anticipate you have to basically marry this company for as long as you're using this product with this customer
1: yeah you know I, I think oftentimes um marrying the company has a negative connotation um you know people are like, hey like why why should I why should I have to continue paying this company um but particularly in the smart home space we've seen products that have not had a we'll call it a marriage commitment behind it um and unfortunately, the business model just wasn't viable to continue to support um, the hardware that had been deployed in the field. I mean, we think of a company like Wink, right? It's um, mm-hmm. leases a product, and there's no RMR associated with it. And at some point in time, they just realize, hey, you know what? We can continue to support this product. So I, I would, I would suggest That's putting it nicely. <laughs> nah, I, I would suggest that you know integrators really look at. Companies that are willing to make a marriage commitment, um, because that that really does provide a level of stability to um, to the products, not just the new products, but the existing products in the field. You know, a lot of a lot of dealers understand what RMR means to them, right? If you have somebody paying you monthly every month. A lot of these guys will bend over backwards to to make it right to support that customer. Um, when we put manufacturers in that position and keep them and keep them in you know kind of in check, right? We want to make sure that there's competition out there so that they don't get you know uh, uh, out of control, right? But but kept in check, that's a very important relationship. It means that that they have to, in order for them to maintain their recurring revenue or the license fees um, that they get from, from you, through you, from your customer. Um, I, I think that that marriage is a, is a potentially good thing. And I think we've seen that prove true. I mean, time and time again, you know, we've seen, uh, integrators with, uh, with customers that are five, 10, 15 years old, um, that are finding that their manufacturing partners are willing to help them. I mean, look at the 2G sunset and the 3G sunset. Because of the revenue associated with those accounts to the manufacturer, those manufacturers were willing to do all kinds of crazy things. I mean, after all the rebates, I don't know how any of them, I don't know how any of those manufacturers uh, survived the, uh, uh, the 3G Sunset, um, I know that they wouldn't have had they not had that uh, uh, that recurring relationship um, with, the, with the subscriber
0: through the integrator. Well, I think Wink is a perfect case study for why why it makes sense to have this recurring relationship with your customers because they went out and I don't know how many they had in the field, but they had a pretty reasonable market share, but their customers were expecting continued innovation. But they they had no continued they had no more money coming in and there was no funding to support the company to continue to grow to the point where when they went out of business they went out of business very hard <laughs> yeah and look the um the, the,
1: it was nothing for them to shut the doors and and go and, and 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 be done with the business because there was no ongoing revenue associated with okay. with those subs- I say nothing i mean that i don't mean to oversimplify it or to say you know it was totally nothing to the people that were working there but when you think about it from if you look at it from like a business perspective had there been some recurring revenue associated with that subscriber base even if the business found that their existing operations weren't viable it would have been likely that somebody would have come in and said hey look we want to buy this business turn it around make some changes make it profitable and not just turn out the lights on uh on all those uh users and so um yeah I mean what a what a wild uh what a wild um uh I guess example of a business going
0: out well to kind of go in a more positive direction <laughs> um is there such a thing as an entry level brand so, if I am, maybe I'm experienced in the camera, in, in cameras that I'm new to access, maybe I'm going to try my hand at intrusion. Maybe I want to get, in, I don't want to jump into fire because that's a little bit more sophisticated, but is there such a thing as an entry-level brand or does it make sense for someone to go either apprentice or partner with a larger company so that they can jump into more complicated equipment or is there is there, are there stepping stones?
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I would, I would say that it's important. I think that the value that integrators provide is, uh, eliminating complexity. Right. So I I would caution, I would caution anyone, uh, from look, I would caution anyone against looking for a product that is so simple that it could be installed without any training, um, Mm -hmm. or any certification process. Um, you know, there's, there should be a learning curve involved in it. Otherwise, your customer could probably do it themselves, right? Or it may be hard for you to mm-hmm. um, to provide uh, value there. Not to say that you want an overly complicated product. I would say that we're very fortunate uh, to have a number of manufacturers and platforms that are out there that are uh, pretty straightforward to um, to get into. Um, they have training resources available. Both in person and online, um, and so yeah, I, I, depending on the product category, um, you know, we talk dealers through figuring out their uh, next step and their next partner um, uh, across product lines all the time, and and there's oftentimes um, we find that getting into that business, getting into that category, is easier than they would have expected. Mm-hmm. They do need to make the investment in uh, in training and time.
0: I, I think I have a tremendous amount of respect for the companies out there that are very hard-lined, that they say, we don't want you using our products until you know how to use them. Because if if there are companies out there who say, I can figure this out. I've been using X brand for 20 years. How hard could it be to use Y? And they send their techs out and do a bad job. It it hurts everybody.
1: Yeah, I, I think that there's... um. A, from a from with my distributor hat on here, I think that there's value in. I I like to think that the best model is increased incentives for dealers to become certified, right? Mm-hmm. And so we don't want to we we don't want to see products that are overly restricted to the point where if somebody's unhappy with their service provider, there's a, a an insurmountable barrier to entry for somebody else. To go out there, figure it out, service that account, right? I mean, you know, you want to make sure that there's um, there's at least the opportunity for consumers to um, to switch if they're not happy with service. That being said, I really really like uh, manufacturers that provide incentives for um, uh, for their partners and the, their partners technicians to become certified on the products. Mm-hmm. Um, that is for us it, it minimizes um unnecessary return merchandise it eliminates um you know technical support and questions that um you know might uh, they might not otherwise have if they had, had some basic training on the product and so i would say um i would say that restriction is good we just don't like to see it overly restricted right We mm-hmm. and, and almost Less about restrictions and more about incentives, right? If you do the steps, you'll
0: be all the more competitive. There was a um there was a vendor that I evaluated a couple of years ago where they had hidden in the language of their vendor agreement, they had set they had a, a statement that basically said, At any given time, we can send one of our people to one of your customers and do an inspection. And if we don't like what we see, we're gonna put a freeze in your account until your technicians go through another round of training. And I I understand putting something like that in there. But when we read that, we said we could never sign this.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, it's uh, I, I think it would be a, uh, I, I don't think they should hide it. I think instead they mm-hmm. should say, hey, look, this is our certification program. Right. Mm-hmm. And these are these are the you know, the things that we want you to commit to in terms of quality, right? Like this is what we expect in a quality install. And if you can check all these boxes off consistently, um, you know, we're going to we're gonna keep, you know, you're going to be able to be authorized to purchase our product or authorized mm-hmm. to purchase our product at a discount or, or authorized to get some additional support that you might not otherwise get if you weren't authorized um, to, to shut you down, right? Then and there, because they didn't like yeah. it. I, you know, I, I would obviously like to, I, you know if i was the integrator i'd be like hey look you know i trust my technicians but you never know when the maintenance man's going to get out there and start you know kind of messing around mm-hmm. with something too and and so i would say that with anything like that any kind of um and this is this goes into any vendor agreement right if there's a if there's an issue make us aware of it and give us an opportunity to fix it right like and and i think that's whether that's with a new manufacturer that's anybody else or just good business practice right sometimes things get screwed up let let whoever it is that did the screwing up know and give them an opportunity to fix it i think that's um i think that's a basis for you know just good relationships not even just business i think that's probably a good basis for personal relationships too uh
0: so let me ask you you know I don't know, five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, the idea of a central station integration wasn't a thing. If you, you know, when you were going from central station to central station, basically the only question you'd ask is, you know, I mean, I don't know, you're basically just talking about price and support and what kind of relationship you'd have with your, you know, as far as moving accounts here and there. But today there's so much more involved depending on what types of technology you're using, whether you're looking at something like an alarm.com integration, you're looking at video verification. Um, you know, there are some manufacturers that are proprietary formats. There are a lot of radios that can't necessarily talk to every receiver. How important are central station integrations? And do you think that more or less any major central station should be fine and you should evaluate them elsewhere or... Do you really need to consider if you're looking at what kind of products, what kind of product line you want to offer, that's how you decide your central station?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say um, it depends on the integration, right? It depends on what you're offering. Um, You know, some of the integrations that we see between, it's typically between the platform provider, uh, like a communications platform provider, let's think cell units, I guess, sell smart home, et cetera, kind of platforms. Um, We oftentimes see those integrated with the central station so that you don't have administrative kind of swivel chair, uh, Mm -hmm. entering subscriber data into one platform, then entering, you know, let's say that you have to enter it into your, you know, uh, uh, communication platform. Then you have to enter it into your central station. You're also entering it into your accounting software. Um, that's a lot of, that's a lot of data entry, double and triple data entry. It creates a lot of opportunity for error as well. And error in billing is scary, but error in central station, you know, um, information is even scarier. Um, I would say it's valuable, right? And so I would have a very, I would make sure that, you know, depending on the product lines or the platforms that you're utilizing, um, to ask those folks, Hey, look, who do you who do you integrate best with? Right, um, where do you have the deepest integrations? That being said, if you have a, a you know a central station partner that doesn't have that deep integration, um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I would say have a conversation with your central station partner that you've come to you know know like and trust and say, hey, this is important to me, mm-hmm. and whether they do it or they don't do it. I think you'll learn a lot about your central station based on their response to your question. Um, so, yeah, I would uh, I, I would definitely say subscriber data is one of the most important. But then we see even like other integrations, you know, ASAP to PSAP, where we're pushing data right into the PSAPs from the central stations. And, you know, that's really cool too. And, you know, the video monitoring stuff is uh, is exciting. Um, but again, it, it really, really boils down to what you sell, right? There's, there's all kinds of integrations and things that are out there, but um, the most important ones are are going to be related to the products and services that you sell.
0: It sounds like a theme across our whole talk has been, it's more about the relationship than about, you know, the nuts and bolts. It's more about, do you trust them? Do you feel they're going to take care of you? Are they going to take care of your subscribers? Am I, am I reading that properly?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm I've built my business on relationships. Most of our partners have really built their businesses on relationships both with their subscribers and with their vendor partners. Um y- you know I-, I I feel like it's very easy um a lot of times we can get we can get lost in spec sheets, right? And mm-hmm. and features and capabilities um but really the most important the most important part of doing business with your customers and your vendors is maintaining open communication and maintaining trust with them that goes both ways right you're communicating with them they're communicating with you and you're neither of you are giving the other person a reason not to trust um that you have their best interests at heart and um and so yeah i would i would definitely say um relationships that's that's a big one for me
0: what do you think is a bigger risk for a dealer having too many offerings or too many different kinds of customers? So, you know, do you put all your eggs in one basket and say, I'm going to be just this kind of shop and this is all I'm going to offer? Or do you want to be the integrator who every time a new opportunity comes up, I'll get certified in this, I'll get certified in that, and I'll just do whatever the customer asks for it.
1: Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, there's definitely risk of becoming a um, a jack of all trades and a master of none, right? Um, I think that if you are going to explore a new product or service offering, um, to make sure that there's somebody within the, ideally more than one person, but at least one person within the company that's going to own that from start to finish, right? They're going to, they're going to understand the product or the platform inside and out. They're going to understand, you know, how to install it and service it from inside and out. Um, and, and they're there to support customers, you know, pre-sale and post-sale. Um, but but there's a lot of danger in, a lot of danger in um, to spreading yourself too thin, not really specializing. Um, that that being said, I, rather than looking for all all the opportunity that's out there, instead I would make an asses- I would make an assessment of how much opportunity, how many opportunities you lose. Um, because you don't do something that your customers are asking you for, right? Like, you know, if you're a security guy and you don't do access control, it it probably makes sense for you to do access control. If you're a security guy and you're like, hey, I can make money on selling phone systems and none of your customers are asking you for phone systems, Mm -hmm. I would give less credence to that, right? Look at adjacent adjacent products, adjacent service categories, and look at missed opportunities. There's endless opportunity out there. Um, I would just, I would really focus on which ones you're missing out on before uh, jumping
0: into a new um, offering. Should a smaller company try to keep inventory lean and mean and project based, or does it make more sense to take advantage of bulk pricing and sales and stock up and you know focus on the long run?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would. I would say that it's probably a blend of the two, right? Um, and, and all of it should be based on forecast and data. I would not, I would not take advantage of bulk pricing on a product that you're not going to need. Um, but if there are products that you can get on a discount that are on promo, um, and you know that you're going to use a certain amount of that product over the next ninety days, hey, that's an opportunity to stock up. Um, but but now uh, stocking up. A year's worth of inventory, I think it's I think it's unnecessary. I think that it creates um, issues with warranty um, down the line. If you you know if you if you're sitting on this product for a long long time, mm-hmm. um, I I would say avoid having to stop by the supply house on the way to your job. You know, make yeah. sure that you've got enough inventory to service your accounts. Mm-hmm. Make sure that you're ordering well enough in advance that. Um, that you're not having to make an unexpected run to uh, to pick something up, um, that's just efficient, right? It's it's doesn't doesn't uh, does save you any
0: money to be sitting in traffic on your way to a supply house. So with the rise of DIYers out there getting more involved and in a lot of cases focusing more on cost over quality, what impact do you see on the NRTL listings? You know the UL, the FM, the ETL do you think that that becomes something that's only relevant in high security? Do you think get something that goes away or do you think at some point the bubble's going to pop and a lot of these DIY companies are going to run to some sort of an insurance compliance issue and, and you're going to see them you see it go the other way?
1: Yeah. I, I would say that, you know, NRTL testing is, um, uh, it is both relevant and important. And I think that, um, you know, professional service providers should be looking to NRTL listings to make sure that the products that they're installing have been tested, you know, whether that's UL or ETL, mm-hmm. um, you know, or or Intertech. Um, but the the listings are important. Um, and what the DIY folks are able to do or get away with, um, you know, I can't I can't speak to that, but but I could definitely say that if you're a professional. Um, I, I would make sure that uh, you're looking at the at the listings and the products that you're selling.
0: We we had a conversation on an earlier episode about the DIY category and the general consensus general consensus among two people <laughs> you know, if you're competing against DIY on an opportunity, you shouldn't be because you're competing for a customer that has already expressed that they don't want you. And it shouldn't be a part of your it shouldn't be a part of your discussion when you're going to market. If there's DIY in the conversation, move on.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think too often dealers are focused on selling the um I think they I think when they get the DIY question, they focus on selling the differences in the products. Um mm-hmm. and I think that's largely irrelevant. I, I, I think that the most important value that the integrator provides is their service is, is their ability to go out there and install it and program it and make sure it's working. Um, You know, you know, I think if we, if we really just, if we just ask folks, hey, do you want to install it yourself? Um, We can really get to the bottom of whether the bottom of whether or not there is even an opportunity, right? Because I can tell you, I, there's so many things I could do at my house. I could go to Home Depot and get things to, you know, to do at my house, but they never get done. I hate doing them. I'm not good at it. And so even if it is DIY, uh, 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 even if DIY is possible, man, it's not something I want to do. I'd much rather pay somebody to do it for me. Um, and, and I think most dealers should probably just stop and ask folks, hey, you really want to do it yourself? Because we can have a tech out there tomorrow to do it for you. And, and that that changes the, uh, it changes the dynamic a lot, I think.
0: There are a lot of people that are Oh, I'm pretty handy, and then you see what that means, or you find out that, like you said, it turns out it's not going to get done for six months.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's there's a, a long list of things that uh, we wanted to get done
0: around the house, and mm-hmm. I just wish my wife
1: would stop reminding me every six months to do them, you know?
0: Well, there. I mean, I've been on so many commercial projects where, where they say, you know, we don't want to pay for the service call, or we don't want to pay for the maintenance plan, so we're just going to have one of our people figure it out, and... Give it a year or two, and now you have a much higher expense to clean up someone's mess because they didn't really know what they were doing. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, and some of the systems you just gotta kind of shake your head and think like, man, that's that's just not a good idea. I mean, when we're talking about security and life safety, um, DIY, particularly in a commercial and, and multi-family level, just
0: just mm-hmm. scary stuff. So we're almost out of time. So I want to ask you just a few questions if that's okay. Sure. Um so <laughs> How would you define trunk slammer? And is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What do you what are your opinions on the term? You know, it's funny. I I um
1: w I'll tell you why I wouldn't describe it. I wouldn't describe it as the man in a van guy that's a, a professional, that's as a technician that's gone out on his own and stands behind the products and the uh, the service that he provides. I think a lot of folks, you know, will quickly write off a small company as a trunk slammer. What I would describe it as is somebody that um that gives the brake light, you know, the brake light warranty, right? Like they're out of there and, you know, the you, you can't stop them. Once you can't see their brake lights anymore, that's it. Um, <laughs> that's a trunk slammer, you know, somebody that doesn't service the customer. Um, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of the entrepreneurial, you know, uh, industry that we're in. I love to see guys get out there and start their own businesses. And I think oftentimes we're too quick to call folks trunk slammers that uh, maybe just don't, yet have the resources of their larger competitors.
0: What do you think is the biggest difference in the industry today versus five to ten years ago? And what do you think the industry will look like in five to ten years from now?
1: Oh, good question. Um, you know, I think that I think that five, 10 years ago we were still selling primarily security. Um, and now I think we're we are selling more um, lifestyle technology, um, you know, the smart home. It turns out Turns out that the smart home stuff was not a fad. It wasn't a gimmick. It's here to stay. Um, I, I would say uh five, ten years from now, we're just gonna see deep, deeper integrations, really cool things that um, you know, your systems are gonna be telling you about uh, about your home, about your lifestyle, and and making things uh all the all the easier for you with uh with insightful uh recommendations, I think. I, I think that once the data is able to um kind of Kind of give you suggestions um that's where it's going to get really
0: exciting and what's one brand or manufacturer do you think most dealers probably haven't heard of but you think they should ooh that's a good one um
1: i would say i'm i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to step back from manufacturer and i'm going to say uh i'm going to go with service i think that There's a lot of folks sleeping on video monitoring technology right now. And there's so many folks that have gotten into this space right now from a hardware to a software perspective, some really cool stuff with AI. The central stations are doing some cool stuff with it. I would say don't sleep on video monitoring technology. That's the full tech stack from the hardware in the field that makes it possible to the software to the central station integrations. Um, don't Don't sleep on video monitoring. Great answer. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Bob. All right, so that's about all the time we have for today. So, Jake, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, what's the best? I mean, obviously, everyone knows who you are, but what's the best way for people to find you?
1: I would love for people to check us out uh, on our website, and we'll link to that in the description here. Um, but also, if you if you ever need me, call the toll-free on our, our website, ask for Jake. I'm always happy to jump on. You can find us on Facebook, on Burglar Alarms Online, uh, the Alarm Industries Facebook group, hit me up on LinkedIn, I'd love to connect with you. And, uh, uh, or just ask Dave, Dave, Dave's got my
0: info, he'll send it over to you. <laughs> and I, I would say the biggest distinguishing factor about Jake is, which somebody asked me on a previous episode, is that there are, Jake's Jake's model of blessed and branded equipment is more than just putting your logo on materials, it's understanding the value of marketing your brand. And I think that's that's something that you don't see everywhere. Well, thanks. Thanks for recognizing that, Dave. You know,
1: I've I have been so proud to be a small part of the success story of hundreds of you know security integrators nationwide. And if there's anything I've learned, it's that they put a lot of pride and uh, they put a lot of pride in their brand and their reputation. And so we're we're very proud to support them by printing it front and center on their on their hardware. Um, thank you very much, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Dave.